Dear Lord, you've promised us that we will have days of heaven upon the earth if we'll follow the simple principles of your word. What a promise. What a hope. What a joy. And you've promised us that it is the Lord that works in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. So we come asking. We come believing. We come thanking you that we are receiving in Jesus' name. Amen. The message of this hour has to do with, with how when we don't get the answers as we would like to get them, God has better answers on the way. I probably will repeat many times during this session a statement something like this. God will either give us what we ask for or something better. Now, I will not be repeating this because we don't have enough material to fill the hour. I will be repeating it because there are tens of thousands, see, hundreds of thousands of professed Christians who have no idea that when God does not give them what they ask for in the way they expect, they have no idea that he's waiting to give them something almost infinitely better. And so we're praying that the Holy Spirit will somehow burn this beautiful, wonderful truth into our minds and hearts. Thus, it'll be easier for us to trust in his wonderful word. It'll be easier for us to know that when we make a decision for him, he will not let us down. And so here is the little formula. God either gives us what we ask for or something better. Will you say it with me? God either gives us what we ask for or something better. Now, we're going to say it again together, and this time we're going to add to it at the close every time. God gives us either what we ask for or something better every time. How about you repeating just every time? Every time. Again, every time. This is according to God's immutable, eternal, impeccable, never-perishing word. Let me cite first two or three promises that say this to be true. Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He either gives us what we ask for or what? Something better every time. There are no exceptions for a child of God. No exceptions. This is what it means to know Jesus Christ. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. To know him this way is to rejoice in him, even in trials, even in bitter disappointments. If we know that he really will do this, it'll be a lot easier to bear the trials, much easier. Now, this is the basis on which he does this. Romans 8, 32. He that spared not his own son. This is the basis. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also, what's the next word? Freely give us all things. What all things? Psalm 84, 11. No good thing will God withhold from them that walk uprightly. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So he who gave Jesus to die on Calvary will with him, not apart from him, with him freely give us all things. Romans 8, 32 for the 
many of you who are taking notes. Now, there's another promise to go with it. We want to rivet these promises in our minds so in these days of utter disappointment, when everything seems black, everything seems crooked, everything seems to be perverse, when it seems that the devil has taken over, we'll not forget these wonderful promises of God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God shall supply all your need, and you don't stop there, according to what? His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He is going to give us a rich answer. That's what the Bible says. Now, here are two other texts that make clear to us why oftentimes we're disappointed. The first is Jeremiah 31 verse, Jeremiah 33 verse 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Ah, that's it. Because we ask God for something, and we do not get the something in the way and at the time that we ask, we think God's overlooked it. God does not overlook his children. He counts every hair in that bald head, brother. And he counts every, the hair in every wig. <laughs> what a wonderful Savior. That's right. Now, here's another text to go with it, and this shows why we're often disappointed. Isaiah 42, 16. I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I'll bring the blind by what? A way that they knew not. We hadn't planned on it. We hadn't expected it. We hadn't even thought of it. We hadn't conceived it. I'll bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they've not known. He said, I'm going to do in the riches of glory by Christ Jesus something that has never even entered your mind. Isaiah 42, 16. Friends, I've almost worn that text out. But it's like a muscle. Just the time you think you've worn it out, it's bigger than ever. More powerful than ever. I will bring the blind, Isaiah 42, 16. I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. I say, praise the Lord. What do you say? Amen. Now, friends, in my own life, this has been fulfilled again and again and again. I'm thinking of two great, deep, dark, dismal Gethsemane experiences in my own life. They were horrible, absolutely horrible. One happened 31 years ago, and many people heard about this. But another one happened only half that long ago, and it was just as deep and as dark, and it seemed like it was worse. I look back upon those two terrifically dark abysses as two of the most marvelous experiences in my life. Why? Because God says, I'll bring you in a way you don't know. I'm still up there. I'm still the one that gave my beloved son. I'm still the God of the cross. And I poured out all heaven in the gift of Jesus. Anything else I do for you is no sacrifice for me, God says. Is it a sacrifice for God to give a man a companion? Is that a sacrifice to God? No way. But it was an infinite sacrifice for God to give his son to go through the humiliation of his whole life 
culminating in the Passion Week and finally on Calvary. That was, that was a sacrifice. So let us know that anything that God permits to come to us, he has a divine purpose of love. Aren't you glad? The result of that first dark, deep Gethsemane experience is what we are sharing with you, the ABCs of prayer and family communication. We would have never been before you, never, had we gone, not gone through that terrible Gethsemane experience. So God led us through this to help us be compassionate. So when we meet somebody else who is having a horrible experience, we can weep with those that weep, you see? And we can rejoice when somebody says, oh, the Lord's given me a wonderful answer. We could never have done it had God not brought us down to the place where we just cried out in desperation and he brought us through. The next experience some 15 years ago was just as bitter. And in some respects, it was more bitter. Unjustly condemned, lied about, slandered, and many, many people believed it, not one word of truth to it. How do you like that? When so many people believe it, you enjoy it? Oh, when somebody else says it, you'll say, oh, be of good courage now. Everything's, the Lord will see you through. But when it comes to you, then what? And I look back upon that experience and I say, thank the Lord. God knew exactly what Glenn Kuhn needed, that I could share it with hundreds of people as we travel. So the suffering that came to me is a great blessing because I can share it with hundreds and thousands of others. And I can say, look, God will answer your prayer in a way you never dreamed but he will answer. He is still on the throne. He's still a God of Calvary. All right? Isaiah 42, 16 says what? It says, God will lead you, but in a way you never dreamed of. How many of you here, and also in the viewing audience, can say that you've had answers to prayer in a way you never dreamed of? Let's see your hands. That's it, see? So you know it's true. You know it's true biblically. You know it's true experientially. This is what God does. Now we come to the, to the account, the experience of this study. We'll call the girl's name Gladys. Uh, this must have happened some, uh, oh, how long ago? Uh, maybe 10 years ago. I think longer than that. I think more like 12 years ago. Gladys was reared in a good Christian home. The young man that she later married was also reared in a good Christian home. Uh, they believed in Christian standards. They didn't believe in drinking. They didn't believe in dancing. They didn't believe in carousing. They didn't believe in sensuality. They didn't believe in carousing. And they were reared in that beautiful atmosphere. The young man took law as a study. And then about this time he was married to Gladys. And as he was taking this course in law, he looked out upon the world, the social world, the professional world, and he saw that, that you move in a certain circle of people who are in the main, and we don't say in every case, who are in the main a sensuous group. There are many exceptions, so please don't misunderstand. But those with whom he was keeping company were people of the world, period. But the Lord says in 1 John 2, 14 and 15, love not the world. That's talking about the sensuous world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If, the, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
You can't hold on to any part of the world and its filth and its sensuality and its greed and its sharp business dealing. You cannot hold on to any of that and hold on to the Lord, right? You can profess to do it, but there's an emptiness. This young man finally made his decision that if he were to succeed in his profession, he must go with the crowd. And then the thought came to him, well, if I go with the crowd, Gladys must go too. We must go as a couple. They couple off. She must go too. So one day he began to hint, you know, we'll have to go the way of society. And society has its dances and its pleasures and its card parties and its, and its drinking and, and all that goes with it. So if we expect to succeed, there's no other way. And he kept hinting and find, finally came out stronger and still more strongly until finally he noticed that Gladys all the while was saying, but we can't do that. We love the Lord. Jesus is coming again. You can't take one step in the direction of the world, friends, except at great risk. Amen? Amen. Remember when we start a little sensuality, a little thing that's questionable, the devil will take us over. Don't do it, beloved. Don't do it. And she said, by God's grace, honey, I can't do it. He said, but you've got to do it. But she said, I can't. And by the way, she almost idolized this beautiful, tall, handsome man. In other ways, he was, he was a wonderful person. She said, I can't do it. I would be bringing reproach on my Savior. I can't love the world in sensuality. I can't take one step in that direction and be true to my Savior. Finally said, Gladys, I love you with all my heart. You know how much I love you. I adore you, but Gladys, my profession will go down the drain unless we do it. And as much as I love you, as much as I cherish you, as much as I believe in you, he said, I'm sorry to have to say it, but it's a firm statement. I'll have to divorce you. You don't mean it. You don't mean it. Gladys, I mean it. And they just sat and cried. That showed how much he thought of her. Just cried, I don't want to. Please go my way. He cried, she cried. They cried together. She said, but honey, I can't do it. I can't turn my back on my Savior. He died on Calvary for me. Can I go into sensuality, into the world, when my Jesus hung on Calvary for me? He came all the white way from Gloryland, down past worlds and systems and planets, and suffered and died for me, and I'm not willing to give up? Something for him. And as the weeks came and went, she wrote us letters. Did she write letters? Brother, I want to tell you, and I wrote back answers. Some of the answers I wrote back were three and four and five pages. You see, we don't have much to do. <laughs> and I began to picture before Gladys that God was going to do one of the most outstanding things that she could ever dream of. And I pictured her husband when he got through his course of study in law as one day standing before the Supreme Court of the United States and defending religious liberty. I said, can't you picture this? God's going to do something tremendous. But Isaiah 42, 16 says, I'll bring the blind by a way that they knew not, neither they nor I. As the battle continued to, to, to rage, she would write us letters, she said, I, 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 I love him so much. I don't know how in the world I could 
ever in this world get along without him. She said he means almost as much as life. Only Jesus means more than he does. And even that's a battle. She said, at my age, and they were still young, she said, at my age, and they didn't have any children, at my age, she said, I don't know when I'd ever find anybody his equal. And we'd shoot back another letter. God is going to do something tremendous for you. It's above all that we can ask or think. And I would try to picture before her this man. I can see this man standing before the highest troop tribunal of our country, and I can see him being used of the Holy Spirit. But instead of that, he divorced her. She went down to Loma Linda and took the dental hygienist course. And while she was there, she got acquainted with different individuals and went through a terrible Gethsemane experience. Loneliness. The devil said, the Lord has forgotten you. Has the Lord forgotten us? Has he forgotten us? Oh, no. No, never. And finally, she wrote us a letter. She said, I have formed the acquaintance now of a dental student. I don't know what's going to happen to it. <laughs> and I wrote back a very guarded, optimistic letter. But my wife and I were praying, Lord, this can be it. <laughs> this can be it. This can be... I don't know. It looks like it might be better. Might be better than the other. Later she wrote back, I've been married. I'm married now to this dentist. He's finished his course. I finished mine. He's a dentist. She said, when you come out to California, I wish you'd look us up. So my wife and I were holding a series of meetings. I think it was in, in uh, Arlington, I believe. Got a telephone call. This is Gladys. Could you come over on such and such a night and take uh, dinner with us? Oh, my, we could hardly wait to get there, you know. I wanted to take a helicopter all the way from Arlington to Loma Linda to get there sooner, you know. When my wife and I arrived that evening, I tell you, I can't forget the, that wonderful evening. She was dressed, she didn't mean to be dressed like a little queen, but she was. She looked so queenly, so young, so beautiful, so pretty. Her, her husband was a regular precious prince. They served one of the most delicious little banquets to, to my pet coon and me. <laughs> and as we're in the middle of the meal, he said, excuse me, I think there's another dish out in, the, uh, out in the kitchen. So as he slipped out in the kitchen, I smiled and I said, Gladys, please, be sure now, tell me, level with me. How is your present marriage as compared with the other one? She said, Pastor Coon, the other one at its best couldn't compare with this. And I knew she meant it. She meant it because when God says, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly, God means what he says. God means what he says. But the thing that is liable to, to hold back God's doing it is if you and I begin to crab. Don't crab at God's providences. I've done it, and God's forgiven me. And he'll forgive you. Remember, if he's forgiven others, even ministers for crabbing, won't he forgive you? He will. So don't crab at his providences. God leads us in the path in which we are led to prepare us for the days ahead, for greater trials. And if we begin to rebel at where he's leading us now, he'll say, okay, if you, if you won't let me lead you this way, 
You can take your own route. Let's take God's route. What do you say? Take God's route. Several years passed, and my wife and I were holding a series up in Auburn, Washington. I believe it was. We received a, a telephone call from up near Kent, Washington. Hello, this is Gladys. <laughs> we're up here practicing. Would you come over and take another meal with us? <laughs> I want to tell you we wanted to get into that helicopter, so, you know, there's something wonderful when you see how a person is apparently going down the drain, and you see how God takes over, <clears throat> and he does something so fabulous above anything that we can ask or think, you just, you're just a part of it, you know. So we went over, sat at their table. She said, you know, my husband and I, she went on and just in a conversation, not boasting, they were doing a fabulous work in witnessing for Jesus Christ. The last letter we received from them they are missionaries in a foreign land, carrying on for Jesus Christ. Oh, friends, I want to tell you, I feel like, oh, I'd like to see Jesus. I'm not worthy, but I'd just like to hug Christ. And I'd like to say, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I look back over my life in the ministry and as a Christian, and friends, I can truthfully say that there has never been a trial that has come to me. There has never been a hardship. <clears throat> there has never been a Gethsemane experience, and there's been many of them. But what God had a specific purpose. You see, he said, I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. You don't put dross in the furnace to refine. That which is put in the furnace to be refined is that which has precious ore. When you go through a refining process, say, thank you, Lord. It means that you know there's something valuable in me. Thank you that you're willing to refine me. You waste no time on worthless dross. How about your life? If you know of individuals who have shaken their fist, in the hands of, their, their fist in the face of God, and I know of several who have, I never went that far. My friends, God will even forgive them. We received a letter, a taped letter, Please don't send us taped letters. <laughs> Takes me too long to read them. <laughs> Unless you make them three minutes. <laughs> they sent us a bit of a three-minute tape letter. This lady had shaken her hand in the face of God two or three times. She said, Pastor, thank you for what you've done. I'd just written her letter and said, you must come to the place where you'll say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He is the Christ of Calvary. She said, I've now learned, and I thank you so much that I've learned to trust the Lord. How can you keep from looking at someone's faults when they are so obvious and you're around them all the time? Uh, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all you ends of the earth. That's number one. Number two is this, and it's very, very important. Do you know you can have a penny so close to your eyes that you can't see a $100 bill a foot away? I have found that those with whom I have conversed, and in my own life, it is so easy for me to look at the few faults that a person has instead of recounting the tremendous number of virtues. You ever stop to think of it? 
and especially those that are in our own home and closely surrounding us, you see. So the answer, another phase of the answer is this. Make a list of 10 qualities of this person that's bothering you, 10 of the good qualities. You'll be surprised what'll happen. You'll find that you've got some of the finest friends in the world and didn't know it. <laughs> Make a list of their good qualities. The devil will get so angry when you do that because he doesn't want us to zero in on the, the, the good qualities of our loved ones. And you know, I know this is true because I've met a number of people, uh, couples, they've crabbed at each other nearly all their life. But the moment that one passed away, the other then said, oh, what a wonderful companion I had. What a shame not to know it when we had them. It was a wonderful corpse they had now. Let's, wait, not, let's not wait until our loved ones become corpses before we thank God for them. What do you say? Thank you. Right along the same line, this questioner says, how can parents show love and understanding for children who are living a worldly life but indicate in their heart they love God and want to be saved? Number one is example. Number one is example. Now, let's first of all, though, take a few moments to diagnose. You know, the medical profession diagnoses. They'll get a case history. They'll go through all of this before they start giving you medicine. Diagnosis is very important. Why? They, then they can learn what disease you have. If we can learn the disease that young people have or loved ones have around us that causes them to be in this situation, if we can learn the why, let's put it that way, if we can analyze the why, then we can remedy much of it. For instance, I have come to conclusion, friends, and this is going to be hard for a lot of Christians to take. I've come to conclusion that there are a few special reasons why young people in particular, our own young people, don't let it discourage you, but let us learn the lesson from it. There are a few special reasons why young people in particular turn from the Lord. One is, they don't see happiness in our lives. They may see us bearing down and say, you do right, but who wants to do right? You see, a person, it's built into us, though we may not recognize it, that right ought to have some delight. Did you know that's biblical? Did you know that right has a has delight? If the Lord asked me to do anything that doesn't spell greater happiness, what would he be? Let me repeat it. If God asked you or me to do something that in the end would not give us greater happiness, even in this life, what would he be? A monster. I want you to do this because I'm bigger than you and I can fry you if you don't do it. Eh. See? No, there's not one thing that my Lord asks me to do. There's not one thing he asks you to do except for our greater happiness. The Bible says it. Here it is. Psalm 16, 11. In his presence... There's fullness of joy. Now, we realize there's a lot of persecution. This comes from the devil, see? It is the devil that tries to get us to give up the joy of Jesus under persecution. The misunderstanding of friends. But Christ's part is all joy. 
In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's why we have 826 texts of Scripture that command us, advise us, or teach us to be happy all the while. Here's one of them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice evermore. Do you think that a young person, three and four and five and six years old, is going to, is going to abhor a happy daddy and a mother? Mother said, Daddy, I'm glad to see you. You think that'll turn a kid off? No, indeed. You know what turns a kid off? Here comes Dad now. I wonder what he's going to do next. See? We're analyzing why our loved ones don't accept the Christ that we have. It's because we have the wrong Christ. I tell a lot of teenagers, I say, I understand you're dumping the Lord. And they said, yes. I said, I'm so glad you're dumping him. And the older people look, what? <laughs> I'm so glad you're dumping him. You know why I'm glad you're dumping him? He never existed. This God that scolds and condemns and belittles, he never existed. Our God is a good God. Our God is a loving God. Our God wants us to be happy. It's the devil that comes in and stirs up a lot of strife so that we will reflect worry. And then we say to the children, you see what I have? You ought to have it too. <laughs> and then the child looks on television <laughs> and he sees a worldly actor or actress. Who wouldn't trade that for this? Right? The way to win people to Jesus Christ is to let them know that what I have found in Jesus will bring them greater happiness. And brethren, tell it to the world. Tell it to our mates. Share it with them everywhere we go. We ought to have whole committee meetings, whole church board councils on it. Let's be a happy people. When we come to the Lord's holy day, let's be a, make it a happy day. Sabbath is a happy day, happy day. Sing it with me. Sabbath is a happy day, happy day, happy day. Sabbath is a happy day. I love every Sabbath. But instead of that, I heard of a lady, she said to her little girl, listen, you didn't keep the Sabbath right. <clears throat> I want you to sit in a high chair now, sit there, <clears throat> and I want you to repeat this. Oh, how I love, oh, how I love God's Sabbath day. God's Sabbath day. <laughs> Horrible persecution. Terrible persecution. We're tr there are hundreds of thousands of professed Christians that instead of reflecting the joy and the delight of Jesus, are out saying to people, you ought to do what I'm doing. And they thought, what? God help me. Do what you're doing? Look like you're looking? Reflect what you're reflecting? This is true. How many agree? This is true. Friends, if people think you're silly for being a Christian, then be a silly Christian. Amen? Amen. That's right. God says 826 times, be happy, be happy, be happy. Amen. 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 All right. Now, there's another reason why these people turn from the Lord. It is because in, in addition to our not being happy, we, we express suspicion. We express suspicion. I don't believe you're doing right. I think behind the corner you met a boy. And you ought to ask God to forgive you for being normal. No young person is supposed to be normal. Only old people ought to be normal. 
So we're flooding them with suspicion. We're trying to, we're trying to, to, to put them in our own grabby way. You see? And then we're saying, you ought to do it because it's right. You mean it's right to fight? You mean it's right to act like the devil? Like a man came to me at the close of one of my meetings. He said, I've learned what's wrong with me now. Why my friends don't accept Jesus. He said, I've been working for the Lord like the devil. Next question. <laughs> I think uh, probably there are a lot of people been acting or working for the Lord like the devil, Pastor Gill. <laughs> the next question says, um, how can we tell when God answers our prayers with an answer that's different from that which we asked? Because it isn't the way we ask. <laughs> you see, he said, I'll bring the blind by way that they knew not. Isaiah 42, 16. Very few of the prayers that I've ever offered as far as providence and circumstance is concerned, very few have ever been answered the way I expected. Isn't that true? So when he doesn't answer the way we expect, remember he's still right there. The next question. When it is discovered uh, by the church that a member is having an affair, is it not the biblically solemn obligation for the church to discipline the offender? Well, friends, this is a very, very, very good question, and I hope the answer will always be remembered by all of us the rest of our lives. In Matthew, the 18th chapter, verses 15 to 18, Jesus tells us what to do and how to do it. He said, if thy brother sin against thee or trespass against thee, go to him, what? Alone. Alone. Have no business presenting this to any church board or any church committee or any church council. If you find, if I find that a brother is straying, Jesus tells me to go right to him alone. The church has no right to take any step. Nobody has a right to go to the pastor. Nobody has a right to go to a church council. Until you have learned that this, if you've learned that a person is, is faltering and making a mistake, go to him alone. Step one. Number two, how will you go to him? Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, if any of you do err from the faith, you which are spiritual... Restore such an one. What? It doesn't say put him out. It doesn't say embarrass him before the whole congregation. It says restore him. So the moment that I learn that somebody's making a mistake, the moment that you learn, I care not what your capacity in the church is, you're to go to him, number one, go to him alone. Number two, you're to go with the idea of restoring him. Number three, how will you restore him? It says, in the, this is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, 2, in the spirit of meekness. In the spirit of what? Meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So when I go to a person, when you go to a person that's made a mistake, we're to go in with, with this attitude. Brother, I have made a lot of mistakes. I've come to ask you if you'll pray for me. Here all the time we know he's the one that's made the mistake and we're asking him to pray for us. 
That's the Bible. Where's that? 1 Peter 2, 17, honor all men. Philippians 2, 3, esteeming other better than ourselves. Go to him and say, will you pray for me? I need your prayer. And, and let's pray together. Let's pray together. I remember many years ago, when my father was a young man, he told, he told me as a boy, he told all of his boys this. He said, as a young man, there was an older minister in that area. And he said, someone uh, had brought some accusation against this minister. And my father said, he said, I went to this minister in a kind way and let him know that somebody was, thought that he was guilty of such and such a thing. He said, the minister said to me, my father speaking, Charlie, what they've accused me of, I'm not guilty, but you are my friend. Thank you for coming and tipping me off. My father went to him as a son would go to a father in the spirit of meekness. He said, you're my friend. When you and I go to those that are slipping away and we let them know that we are sinners, oh, it means a lot. In our book, Sweethearts Again, by the way, it's one of the textbooks for this series. And after this service, you'll find some here. In the book, Sweethearts Again, we tell the experience that we had with a man who, who was out committing adultery, living with another woman, and yet he was engaging in wonderful Christian work. When uh, a member of my team and I went to see him, you know what we did? We went with the idea of restoring him. Everything we said, we brought no accusation against him in any respect. The devil is the accuser, right? He's the accuser of the brethren. Brethren sin, right? And when a brother sins, the devil accuses. We're not to accuse the sinner. We're to restore the sinner. So we went to this man's home. I called him first on the phone and I said, I'd heard he just beat his wife up beside his adulterous behavior. And we prayed that the Lord would guide us. And I said, call him on the phone. I said, brother, I, we, I want to come down and see you. He said, uh, I said, I have some good news for you. I've got some good news for you. He said, I think the sheriff will be here before you are. I said, brother, we've seen to it. There'll be no sheriff coming. We'll be there. He said, well, he, he wasn't sure whether we were going to scold him or not. Finally, he said, okay. When we walked into his home with prayer, we walked into his home with this in mind. To do what? Restore him. In what spirit? The spirit of meekness. Everything we shared with him was to build hope. For we're saved by hope. Romans 8, 24. This is the way to start. If the man doesn't hear us, then we take a couple more. But listen, we cannot expect that man to hear us if we go to see him and we start assuming that what? He's the backslider and we aren't. How many backsliders are there here in this? That's right. At least half of us know it. But the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. When I go to visit a man that is strayed, I'm a strayer. You're a strayer. I have no business making out that he's worse than I am. For the wages of sin is death. Whatever the sin may be, I have no business to go to him with the idea, you better sin the way I sin. 
or you better stop sinning. That's the way to go to it. Next question. This next question is, is really a good one. Pastor Kuhn, my problem is my husband is a perfectionist and no one can ever please him. So he usually ends up doing everything himself. I can see what it is doing to my sons. One is outgoing, but very flippant and sarcastic. He's age 14. The other one, age 10, is withdrawing, and whenever possible, he disappears when his father is around. It has nearly got me ready for an ulcer or a breakdown, since I don't seem to be able to help him or reinforce my son's inferiority complexes, and I'm afraid of them becoming a mama's boy. I pray to God you can help me know what to do. Well, bless your heart. Will you get another slip of paper right now and write a little bit more as to why you think these boys are withdrawing if the man does this work himself? Will you do that? In the meantime, this, here's the one that will tell you what to do. <laughs> bless your heart. But isn't it wonderful to have a, a mate that's not merely, if, he's, if he has to be a perfectionist, isn't it wonderful he's willing to do it himself? <laughs> Thank the Lord. <laughs> Say, go to it, buddy, go to it. <laughs> Thank the Lord. <laughs> but if any of you lack wisdom, do what? Ask of God. I think this is the first question I've ever heard in my life of a perfectionist that was being criticized by his mate for doing it himself. I don't think the criticism is that uh, she's criticizing him for doing it himself, but he seems to criticize everything. You know, when he asks the kids to do something, they don't do it right, so then he goes ahead and does it himself. I get it, that's good. That, you don't need to write it out. Do, that's what it is, yeah. right, I didn't get that. That's why the children are withdrawing, is because he is criticizing them. He's criticizing them. Now, <laughs> number one, you'll claim a promise from the Lord for wisdom. Number two, if you have been at another session of ours, You'll remember we presented about six Bible laws of how to sit down. Instead of, instead of quarreling through the day or murmuring and disputing, you would sit down together at an arranged time. At this time, when you sit down, you'll recall that you're not to, to bear down on him and make him appear, uh, this husband, to make him appear very small and unworthy because he's done this, Merely state, in the fewest words you can, to merely identify it so we know what you're talking about. Say, here's the problem. As you criticize me and you criticize the children, the children are withdrawing because they feel they can't do anything to please you. And that's enough. Now, don't, don't go on a whole t paragraph. If you do, it arouses his defenses, see? So, I have a suggestion for you, you could tell him. You see, always overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21, always overcome evil with good. I have a suggestion for us, you'd say. My suggestion is that when you ask your child to do anything, no matter how poorly he does it, the fact that he's willing to start, you'll compliment him for even starting. And I remember hearing Pastor Kuhn, you might say, blame me a little, see. I remember hearing Pastor Kuhn say we should treat our children like dogs. He said that when we train dogs, if a dog obeys us, even tries to obey us, we reward him. So we want to reward the children. We want to reward the children. Always reward them. Now, if you're going a little farther back, friends, you may find this. In my experience, I've found it almost 99 cases out of 100 
This rare perfectionist who criticizes others has a real hang-up himself. Do you know when men complain and criticize others, you know what they're doing? They have a guilt in most cases. And when a man is guilty, follow me carefully, when a man is guilty, he will either place this guilt on the Lord Jesus who died as his guilt-bearer, or he'll place this guilt on somebody else. So you'll be praying earnestly that this mate that seems so perfect in the heart there may be a very strong aching guilt. You see, I knew a lady some time ago. I'd never met anybody like this before in my life. We were to go and pray for her. If she would touch anything, she had to wash her hands. If she touched the lapel of her coat, she had to wash her hands. If she touched uh, a fork, she had to wash her hands. All while washing her hands. Under terrible guilt, perfectionists may be, that is, critical perfectionists, may be under a great deal of guilt. So pray for them. For all our hearts, pray for them. Uh, honor them, too. Some of you have heard me tell why the Bible says a woman should reverence her husband. <laughs> It's not because he deserves it. It's because he needs it. <laughs> and it may be the more you praise him and are kind to him, you may find he's easier to live with. But then, on the other hand, you'll want to talk with him alone. If he doesn't see light in it, then if it has become unbearable, then you'll want to suggest that he go to a counselor. If he does not go to a counselor, then take the next step and say, this cannot continue. It's very important. But remember this. First, make yourself so winsome. Don't be retaliating. Make yourself so winsome that he will not want to lose you and the children. That's extremely important. Who wants to trade a $10 bill for a dollar bill? And if you're a $10 wife and somebody else is a dollar wife, why shouldn't he choose you? But if you make yourself a two-cent piece by quarreling a little and he sees somebody else, though he's not running around now, he will. <laughs> you see? So make yourself so desirable that when you finally take him, you'll have to meet it sooner or later head on, and God will go with you. This questioner says, I still am having trouble understanding how you can thank God for something you haven't got yet. Doesn't the scripture say someplace, seeing is believing? <laughs> Bless your heart. <laughs> no, the scripture says the just shall live by faith. Now, when I hold in my hand an apple seed, what do I have in my hand? Anybody? I have an apple tree. Even though I can't see it? Yes. When I hold in my hand a persimmon seed, what am I holding in my hand? Persimmon tree. Do I have to see it? No. When I hold in my hand a promise of God, follow me carefully, the promise of God is seed, Jesus said, Luke, 11, Luke 8, 11. So when I hold in my hand a promise of God, the promise contains the gift. Now I take that promise, the seed, put it in a, the soil of a believing heart. I don't see the answer any more than I see an apple tree and an apple seed. But it's there just as much as an apple tree is an apple seed. So the just shall live by what? By faith. Especially when I'm praying for the conversion of someone. I say, Lord, you have said, I will save your children. 
Isaiah 49, 25. You have said, if any man see his brother sin a sin that's not a death, we may ask, you will give him life. 1 John 5, 16. Lord, the gift is in the promise if I will convey, if I will reflect the love and the joy. There are conditions. If I go around as a grouch, I can't expect you to save him. But Lord, the gift is in the promise. It'll take a while for the acorn to show up as an oak tree, right? Good. Thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.